Hello and welcome to this special episode of the Poisons and Pestilence podcast, Biochemical Air Power. Today we're very lucky to have Reed Kirby joining us. I really hope you enjoy the show today. What do you know about chemical warfare? Some people think of the use of chemicals in war as dating from World War I. However, soldier, that's not true. Chemical warfare is almost as old as warfare itself and antedates the use of gunpowder in the Western world by many centuries. However, before the age of science and when chemistry was regarded as black magic, the soldier had to rely for chemical agents on what he could find in nature, such as pitch, tar, sulfur, and straw, most of which was, generally speaking, quite inefficient and bulky to carry. The first modern effective use of chemical agents in war was made by the Germans. By the end of the war, the use of gas and smoke was planned in each operation. As a result of this experience, the Chemical Warfare Service was made a separate branch of the Army. Out on the Great Salt Lake Desert of Utah is located the Deseret Chemical Warfare Depot, where great quantities of chemical agents are stored in bulk. You're looking at 70,000 drums of mustard gas, which is just a part of what we're holding for the day when the Japs or Germans want to start something. Well, uh, so I am a chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, seaburn military historian, uh, specialized mostly on the Cold War, but of course, as you know, to uh, study this area, you have to study it throughout from prehistory to current day. And I got into it in the 1980s during the Cold War, um, because at that time, we were more concerned about nuclear annihilation at the time. And there was also a lot of conversations about disarmament and chemical biological weapons. But the problem you had at the time was there was like no information about what these were or how they would be used. And I wanted to solve that problem and learn these things throughout and understand, have a functional knowledge of how they operate to understand what the real issues were. And that's how I got into it. And um, it's one of those things that's been personally rewarding because it's been kind of a a nexus of science, technology, history, culture, and many different areas all combined to learn something. Fantastic. So when I invited you to come onto the show and you agreed, thank you very much, um, I basically gave you free reign to talk about anything you wanted to i mean i know over the years you've worked on lots of, of different areas um so i think we both agree that it'd be probably good for you to talk about something that you're you know currently uh, knee deep in so why don't you tell us a little bit about what we're going to be talking about today and hopefully we can try and stick to that topic but of course no no promises dear listener so recently i did some work on uh, anti-crop warfare and it's anti-crop air power from 1943 to 1975, the United States experience. One of the things that I am fascinated though about is how retaliatory plans evolved during the Second World War and how it dispelled a lot of technology myths about how things would operate before the war and then during the war where they came out and says, here's what we're really going to be able to do. 
they made a lot of dynamic compromises. And that's it's a fascinating thing. There's like things you'll see, like before the war, we'd say that a one gallon varnish can would be an ideal landmine filled with mustard gas until we started having to send them to North Africa and realized we were going to send a Liberty ship full of empty cans and another Liberty ship full of 55 gallon drums of mustard gas. That's a lot of waste. So that weapon system was not a good weapon system for fielding overseas. So you have those kind of things that happen, and it's just fascinating to see how that uh, evolved. So in the interwar years, there was a certain expectation in Europe uh, that the Nazis would utilize chemical warfare uh, against civilian centers and frontline troops. And in the Eastern theater, of course, uh, the Japanese were already deploying uh, chemical weapons uh, in Manchuria. And so why don't we start by unpacking that context a little bit more? If you go before the war, one of the things that's uh, fascinating was is that uh, during the First World War, chemical weapons were used, air power was used. Um, Little Hart said that the three main achievements of the war was the introduction of armor, airplanes, and uh, gas. The Second Industrial Revolution brought that about. But after the war, it started to be realized that there should be an amalgamation between air power and chemical weapons, chemical air power. And the ubiquitous nature of air power meant that while bombing frontline troops with chemical weapons was not necessarily effective because troops were organized to respond to that, cities, on the other hand, were not. And the notion of bombing cities with a combination of gas, incendiaries, and high explosives was something that in the 1920s was theorized. And I, in many ways, think that that's primarily where a lot of the the ejection came from, was the notion that this could be a serious problem for civilization if we had um, nations bombing each other's urban centers with chemical weapons. So that fear was there before the Second World War. And before the Second World War, you also had uh, Italy used chemical weapons in uh, Ethiopia, and Japan used them in uh, China. So there was this belief that, yeah, the next world war is going to be a gas war, and every nation was being prepared for that. So the Chemical Warfare Service is probably a, a good place to start. Yeah, the uh, Chemical Warfare Service uh, in some ways was its own worst enemy during the uh, interwar years period. Uh, Amos Fries was the uh, commanding general after the First World War, and he had a personal bias against uh, flame and incendiaries. So the United States made no efforts towards those type of weapons, even though those were the predominant ones used in the Second World War. Uh, Also, they had this notion of gas troops, and they had the uh, gas regiments, and um, these were troops that had um, chemical mortars, uh, gas cylinders, and liven projectors, and by the beginning of the first of the Second World War, this was probably the very finest um, trench warfare soldiers you could possibly have for a mobile front that was never going to use them. But on the other side of it, uh, the Chemical Warfare Service had a liaison with industry and universities that was leveraged for the Manhattan Project and many other things. The also 
the Chemical Warfare Service did reach out to the Army Air Force and they had collaborated and had integrated their forces together for air chemical operations. So there was a very robust idea of using chemical weapons by air to where the Second World War, if we had to retaliate, over 90% of that retaliation would have been by the Army Air Force, not by ground forces. So yeah, I mean, the US certainly did leverage uh, many universities as part of kind of building this this chemical warfare service, which was certainly gargantuan by the end of the First World War. But there was still kind of this search for application um, in a time where the character of warfare had shifted fundamentally. So, so one thing that's kind of fascinating, so from the British, the British had this notion before uh, the Second World War of high-altitude chemical spray operations. They had come up with something called RONCOL, or Agent T, we would call it today, mixing that with uh, mustard gas, and it wouldn't freeze. So that meant that a bomber with a bomb-based spray tank could fly at high altitude, like 25,000 feet. And the mustard gas wouldn't freeze in the tanks, and they could then spray uh, a group of bombers could spray, say, a city, and uh, 20, 30 minutes later, it would deposit on the ground after the bombers had left. And it seemed like a great strategic idea. The United States had also invested heavily in aircraft spray tanks as well. The problem they had, though, is at the beginning of the Second World War, the Army Air Force really didn't like the idea of having a capital bomber being used as a uh, spray platform. One is they had this culture of precision bombing and the best that an aerial spray tank could do from high altitude was hit a two square mile target reliably. Not exactly precision. The other problem was is they believed that uh, spray operations were, would need to be uh, low altitude to be effective and that was an anathema to a fly high and fast air force to fly low and slow. So all the efforts trying to develop the ideal chemical weapon with spray technology, spray tanks, was put aside and the Army Air Force then had to work on using um, large chemical bombs, which they liked, they preferred because they could then lay a train of bombs on their target and allow that to be used to effectively cover the area. Chemical operations at the time anticipated blanketing an area, 80% coverage with a chemical weapon. For the Army Air Force, the concepts that they had for this uh, varied. And when it got down to retaliatory plans, they had a concept they called G-Day, was gas day. That was the date that the Germans or the Japanese would see that there was some tactical advantage to using chemical weapons and would use them against the Allies, and the Allies would then have to reply. That theoretical date was the same as D-Day, during the D-Day invasion, and then also at other key points during the offensive where they felt that the Germans would see that advantage in Europe. And the same thing in Japan, they had the same idea around it. So before that would take place, they would ramp up their chemical defenses because it, it would cost an army something to engage in all these chemical defenses and ship all that material. And they would then ignore that 
in the periods where they didn't think there was an advantage. But with G-Day, when that happened, the retaliation that we would wage against the Germans or Japanese, and the European theater, it was one of these things to where they would believe that the first week of operations, they would double the sortie rate, and they would use like 50% of the bomb load would be gas bombs. And then they would drop that to 25 and carry that out at a normal rate for about a 60, 90-day period. The, there was some debate, though, within the Allied command. Before D-Day operation, the primary targets were cities. The idea was that they wanted to subject 25% of the German population to chemical attack. That was the notion. And that 25% figure is important because it even got carried out into the Cold War as being the figure of uh, retaliation. The British in the United States and the bomber commands had differences of opinion on how to use chemical weapons. One belief was, well, let's just try it as a mixture with our normal bombing operations as we conduct them and look at it more as a psychological weapon and then after a period of time evaluate if it's actually buying us anything. Another concept that was out there was, no, why don't we just focus on bombing a one-mile radius area in the center of a city, saturate it, and then let it diffuse out across the city and use it as a weapon of mass destruction on individual cities. And then another thought, of course, was divide the city up into sectors and then saturate those sectors of the city as individual gas targets. So those were competing ideas for strategic bombardment. And it wasn't creating 25% gas casualties. It was just attacking cities so that 25% of the population would recognize that they were subjected to a gas attack. But when the D-Day invasion happened, those, those plans instantly changed. They changed from strategic targets to very tactical targets. And the gas plant, the retaliatory plans for the D-Day invasion was essentially to isolate that portion of France by using mustard gas on key choke points to prevent the Germans from bringing forces in and then attacking key uh, German forces directly with the tactical bombardment of gas. That organization was established during the First World War and underwent quite a steep learning curve um, in response to the, the early use of chemical weapons and the rapid uh, developments in the agents that were employed and how they were employed in the battlefield in Europe. After the First World War, uh, it wasn't really clear if chemical weapons were a thing of the past or the future. And I think this is something that both the Chemical Warfare Service had to negotiate in the US and other services around the world. I think in particular, there was this idea, and perhaps you can correct me if I'm wrong, that you know there were still cultural differences between the Europeans and the US in terms of how they understood chemical weapons, and in particular, the extent to which the US tended to understand them as a kind of uh, battle-winning weapon, whereas um, in the European states in particular, there seemed to be this greater emphasis on the idea of utilising chemical weapons alongside more conventional munitions um, as a means to kind of force multiply. I, I would say that there was a nuanced view from different quarters on that. Mm. Uh, most definitely everyone believed you had to have um, a combined weapon effect. The question is, what was that mixture of weapons? Yeah. 
should it be predominantly chemical weapons um, or should it be predominantly high explosives with chemical weapons so a lot of the uh, sortie rates would assume that like one out of four bombs would be a chemical bomb thing something like that and that seemed to be a popular figure used but you also see that when they that the strong advocates for it was no 100% of the bomb load should be chemical weapons and that was a different strategy they did look at um, what the effects were like the problem was incendiaries would be possibly creating too many convections that would make it ineffective the other problem would be explosives would cover mustard gas up with debris and it wouldn't be effective but there was also the idea too that if you mix chemical weapons with high explosives and incendiaries that it also made uh, restoration of an area difficult because if someone tried to dig through that rubble they would encounter pockets of chemicals now this you know large widespread use of, of chemical weapons um seems to be at odds well it certainly is at odds with the kind of idea of precision bombing uh, we talked about um a few moments ago but of course during the second world war you know you were seeing large-scale fire bombing of, of urban areas um designed to basically beat civilian populations uh, into a submission so i guess the question is you know the extent to which these plans um you know if things had gone another direction and chemical weapons had been deployed in europe or in, in uh, by the us um, in the eastern theater uh, to what extent uh, did the capability match uh, this planning it, they certainly had the capacity to do what they wanted to do um that was not that was something that really wasn't questioned the problem they really had was getting the tonnage into theaters to be able to support that you know for you may have heard of the uh, disaster at barry harbor in italy well that was to supply the seventh air force with chemical weapons to hit southern germany during a chemical retaliation and that unfortunately for the uh, allies the germans bombed the ships that were in that harbor and a large shipment of mustard gas went down on that so in terms of, of production uh, with the expectation of large-scale use that wasn't really an issue for the u.s i mean i think i read somewhere that you know some of these sites could produce uh, the same volume of, of mustard in a day that was deployed um, in the entirety of the first world war conflict which may be false by the way dear listener so if you can correct that do let me know i also read that in the uk uh, there was concerns or there were concerns about the ability of, of the uk to produce enough agent to retaliate convincingly to german use now the germans knew the uk had some capability um, but as i understand it much of that capability towards the end of the world war may have come from uh, the US, who must have worked quite hard to distribute this stuff to relevant theatres, is that right? Yeah, so the um, chemical weapons produced in the United States in mass were shipped to the theatres. Um, the weapons themselves were lugged for carriage on both American and British aircraft. So there was always this weapon sharing idea behind it. 
before the D-Day invasion, those chemical stocks were and uh, units were dispersed and were not centralized in any particular area. And then after the D-Day invasion, or before, right before the invasion, they started to concentrate into England to um, anticipate that they need to support the retaliatory mission. The feeling that there was never enough chemical weapons most certainly uh, was pervasive throughout the war. Problem is, is that you had one that they needed the tonnage of chemicals, but then the second problem you had is that they needed to have those chemicals in bombs to be delivered. So there was a two-step problem there. And then the last one was just getting those bombs into the theater. Uh, this is definitely illustrated in the war in Japan. The war in Japan uh, was kind of the opposite of what happened in Europe. Retaliatory plans were mostly tactical because we couldn't bomb Japan, the main Japanese islands, until towards the end of the war. And then at the end of the war, they became strategic. So what surprised me most uh, when I was reading up about this was the extent to which uh, the Chemical Warfare Service had eyes and ears out into the east. Obviously, the, the Japanese had been employing chemical warfare against the Chinese in Manchuria and various units were getting hold of, of different materials and sending them back home. And this wasn't just chemical munitions, but also things like flamethrowers. So, I mean, the US were under no illusion as to the extent to sort of Japanese capability in chemical warfare. I guess then we should talk a little bit about the kind of deterrence posturing that the US engaged in, in order to deter the Japanese from deploying chemical weapons against U.S. troops. Well, yeah, so in the United States knew that Japan had used chemical weapons, and even for the war, there was rumors of them using biological weapons in China. That had been written up in some obscure locations. But during the island hopping campaigns, you had strong advocates for using chemical weapons against the Japanese. You had these cases to where a 500-pound bomb could literally land next to a pillbox and not uh, destroy the pillbox and the people in it. But on the other hand, a few pounds of mustard gas in a jungle, and everyone in that jungle would be blistered from it. So it was looked upon as people as being a great tactical advantage. The Japanese forces also, when pressed, would resort to using chemical weapons against allied forces in some small pockets. Now, these weren't by any national command authority. They were local commanders in desperate situations. I know of one incident that took place in Manila because the United States took depositions from the Americans that were exposed to the chemicals. And that way they kind of had a proof in saying, yeah, we were attacked by chemical weapons as possibly being the justification for us to retaliate in kind. Again, strong advocates for us using them in that theater. So there was uh, definitely big concern about it, and there was people looking for instances where the Japanese were using chemical weapons and documenting that for just that purpose. Also, at the uh, towards the end of the war, Saipan, Iwo Jima, those island uh, campaigns, the losses were horrific. And the American population really changed its attitude towards the war after those battles. And there was a strong belief from a lot of people in America that it would be better to cook them with gas, as one newspaper wrote it up as, 
and use chemical weapons as a way of ending the war sooner. I guess what's most, I guess what's most shocking there is how close things came uh, to going in a different direction entirely in relation to U.S. chemical warfare use. I mean, you know, page one of most histories of chemical warfare you know, states that you know chemical weapons weren't utilised in in Europe, and that this strengthened uh, the norm against these weapons. Indeed, you even see, you know, quote, you know, even the Nazis didn't use these these agents. Of course, the, the reality behind that is a bit more more complex. And in particular, you know, you, you saw stay behind troops. I mean, we had Robert Peterson uh, come and talk about some of the agents employed by Polish forces. So there were isolated incidents uh, of use of these agents. And I didn't realise, you know, I hadn't didn't know about the specific instance you just talked about there. There was an incentive for, for states to often downplay the use of these weapons to enable them to kind of have that card in their pocket to decide at a time suitable for them if they would escalate and go down the kind of chemical warfare, you know, essentially retaliatory route. And if we, you know, are looking at the Pacific War in the late night in the from 1943 onwards, times are really desperate. The island hopping campaigns were horrifically costly in, in human lives. And I suppose then there must have been real pressures uh, within the US to consider employing these weapons. So in some ways, the retaliatory capacity of the US was on a, a hair trigger, but this seems to have been a political decision what were the nature of theatre preparations for use of these weapons? So all the theatres had to reply back to the Joint Chiefs with their chemical operation plans, their retaliatory plans. And the um, they had to base it off of the munition expenditures of a training circular that was out at the time. Each of these commands replied back, and then it would also come back with what their requirements were for how much tonnage of chemical weapons they needed and what kind of mixture they needed. For Japan, as the war focused on the main islands of Japan, the planning started to go towards saturation bombing of cities. In in that, they would divide the city into districts, and those districts would be 80% hit with mustard gas, where it would create 80% casualties over like a four-hour period of exposure or also using phosgene as another one. Now, the United States didn't like using phosgene in urban areas because it would drift to collateral losses, but they were looking also at just bombarding dense population centers. The problem with that, of course, is that that required a huge tonnage of chemical weapons, and that required them to move stockpiles that were intended for Europe to the Far East. The other problem was is that we didn't think we had enough of these chemical weapons, so we were looking to capture German weapons and repurposing them for the United States to use in, against Japan. We believe that if Japan's main islands were invaded, or eventually Japan would just out of desperation resort to chemical weapons anyways, so we would have to retaliate. We felt as the war continued, the probability of Japan using chemical weapons was rapidly increasing. Um, one of the fascinating things that they had at the end of World War II was the um, captured German stocks of Taboon, 
FGA, those were um, considered for repurposing in use against Japan as well. One of the interesting things about that, though, is that the British looked at it as being a potent nerve agent, and it would arsenal scientists looked at it, and they thought of it as really more of an eye irritant. They didn't think it was that powerful an agent. <laughs> I think it's probably fair to say that disagreements between British and US scientists was a recurrent theme of the history of chemical uh, warfare uh, after World War One. In this case, though, that wasn't really helped by the fact that the Allies had been so surprised by the extent of the German nerve agent program uh, in particular. Yeah, well, the Germans had uh, invented Taboon, Sarin, Soman, and had this series of nerve agents. But for the United States, we had this large uh, research and development program that had also found similar agents and many other types of agents that they did not have. Carbamates, um, cadmium-based agents, ricin-toxin. And so when we looked at agents, we saw that there was a considerable number of possibilities. But at the end of the day, we had to ask ourselves, were they much more superior than using phosgene and mustard gas in terms of cost or logistics? And even though these may have been powerful agents, they were marginal at the end of the calculations. <laughs> and of course, post-World War One, during its war years and, and throughout the Second World War, the U.S. also had its own kind of doctrinal approaches to chemical weapons and, and preferred agents. I mean, I just read uh, a history on, on lewisite, which was one of those strange agents which emerged at the end of the First World War, uh, wasn't used, uh, but then became part of, of the U.S.'s interwar arsenal. Early in the war, one of the uh, doctrinal inventions the United States had was something called uh, persistent vesicant spray, PVS. So then for spray weapons, they had this notion of Here's these different mixtures that could be used by uh, spray, by aircraft spray. And it was things like a mixture of uh, lewisite and mustard gas would be ideal for uh, defeating uh, protective clothing. Or um, HT mixture would be ideal for high altitude spray. Or uh, H cube as uh, for increased persistence. Or another one was HV, a thickened mustard for high altitude because it would keep the uh, droplets more uh, from breaking up into too fine a mist or vapor. So that you know, really is a, a wide range of, of agents with, with especially developed doctrines uh, which would have been employed in the eventuality um, of, of the US deciding to uh, pursue uh, offensive operations. Um, so Thinking, you know, towards sort of 1943, what were the kind of end games that were on the horizon? Because we all know how the, the Second World War in the Pacific eventually ended. But I guess it'd be interesting to kind of expand on that a little bit more. Yeah, well, so for Japan, there was differences of opinion. General Marshall and MacArthur as well believed that the war should end with Operation Downfall, Olympic and Coronet, with massive amphibious invasions of the main islands and that these were going to inflict huge American casualties to take these islands. And the other opinion, the one held by the Navy, the Army Air Force, and the Chemical Warfare Service, was we didn't have to do that. 
Uh, we had Operation Starvation, where we had cut off over 80% of the sea lanes to the main islands. And there was this belief that we could, we were burning out a city a night with incendiary bombings. And we felt that we could essentially bomb them, keep them isolated, contained, and just bomb them until they surrendered. There has periodically been seen a report. It's a uh, war plan for Operation Olympic using chemical weapons. It borrows heavily on a earlier war plan on five strategic gas targets in Japan, which was a plan for the plans. One of these kind of military things where someone creates a plan to be used as a pattern for war planners in the theater to say, here's how to do the analysis. And when you look at it, it was created by uh, Ninth Air Force chemical officers that were returning from Europe. And it was there's only five copies of it. So it looks like it might have been at best a proposition of possibly using chemical weapons. But if you looked at the details of it, it was more like a capabilities plan of what we could possibly do, not necessarily what we'd actually do. And it's specified specific gas targets in uh, Operation Olympic and how those would come about. That was completely separate from Operation Olympic. Operation Olympic didn't include any chemical weapon employment at all that I could see. It only had chemical mortar battalions, but those were just used as uh, heavy mortar support for infantry, just very typical of white phosphorus and high explosives. But there was also some other plans at the end of World War II Two. And one of the things that was fascinating was the idea of using 2,4-D, the herbicide, against Japanese crops. There was a war plan to, to destroy 10% of Japan's agriculture in the summer of 1945. And the, they missed the window for that. And so then it was proposed saying, okay, let's offer this to the theater commands to possibly use to starve out uh, holdouts, Japanese holdouts on the islands. And there was 25,000 25, pounds of this stuff available. And the uh, local command said they didn't want to use it because it would cause starvation in their areas against their civilian populations. And that was considered to be counterproductive. The Also, back in the United States, the use of using it in Japan was controversial because the realized the war was coming to an end, and if we inflicted starvation on a Japanese population, we would have that same problem as the occupying force. But if the war had continued into 1946, the next plan was to destroy 30% of Japan's crops with a massive aerial bombardment of T4D and other herbicides. And that's one of those areas I'm currently researching because it deals with anti-crop air power. Fascinating. So before we turn to looking at a crop air power a bit more detail, it's probably worth summing up the nature of the Second World War as a kind of chemical warfare, a biological warfare crucible, and thinking about how that bled forward into the post-Second World War era. And in particular here, we're talking about Korea and Vietnam. So one of the agents for the United States was looking at during the Second World War was rice and toxin. The United States experience with rice and toxin first started in the First World War. But in the Second World War, it was picked up again, labeled Agent W or WA. 
and the um, idea of using that was a delayed uh, respiratory agent, a delayed lung agent. And um, that was going to be the standard agent after the Second World War, and the United States continued with a pilot plant development. And then in 1948, after the United States had already thought that Taboon was just more of an eye irritant, started looking at sarin and realized that sarin was way better than ricentoxin. And so they halted all work on ricentoxin to undertake uh, building a pilot plant for uh, sarin. And then that started the United States building an arsenal of 15,000 tons of sarin. And But when you get to the Korean War, the problem was is the uh, we didn't actually have a way of producing sarin at the time. That was still a crash program, Project Gibbet, to get a um, Rocky Mountain arsenal to produce it. And with the germ war propaganda that was coming out from the uh, Chinese in the Korean War, General MacArthur was convinced that that was a prelude to the um, Chinese forces using biological weapons against UN forces. And he requested immediately assistance with retaliatory biological weapons, or could he use chemical weapons as an alternative? And the Joint Chiefs of Staff replied back that there were no biological weapons available and that they would uh, supply chemical weapons as a retaliatory capability. The problem, though, was there wasn't nerve agents available at the time. So the ones that they were going to send were vintage chemical weapons. And the strategy that they were looking at was the strategy developed in the Second World War, and that was the idea of penetrating gas masks. The Second World War, that the idea was you blanket an area with cyanogen chloride, the gas mask filters absorb that, and then you keep the target wearing their gas mask for an hour or more by using other weapons like phosgene or mustard gas, and then the, phos then the cyanogen chloride desorbs from the filter and penetrates the mask filter and forces the person to doff their mask and get exposed to other chemicals. The same idea was going to be used in the Korean conflict with mustard gas and cyanogen chloride as being an option there. And they evaluated how much they needed to use in that kind of terrain and had plans to send 400 tons of, this, of chemical weapons to that theater. Um, but at the same time, Taboon raises its head again, started to evaluate it because we had uh, captured stocks of German uh, 250 kilogram bombs full of um, taboon. Um, according to Julian, those were uh, Julian Perry Robinson. Those were uh, British uh, stocks that the United States was storing on their behalf. But either way, the United States looked at this and realized that, hey, we could use taboon in that theater. And taboon GA was made as a momentary uh, intermediate standard nerve agent for a period of time until uh, sarin was available to the armed forces. So what was the actual threat of use of chemical or biological weapons in the Korean War? Yeah, so the threat was non-existent. It was a propaganda effort. There's no evidence that we know of contemporarily that the uh, Chinese or the Soviet Union supplied chemical weapons to be used in that theater. 
or biological weapons. Um, the deployment of chemical weapons um, for that was held up because they didn't really know where to put them. Ideally, you'd want to put them as close as possible to the battlefield, but the closest they could get to was probably Japan, and they thought that the Japanese laborers would inform the public that these are being stored. So then the other place to put them was Guam, which is a lot further away. It is interesting, though, that towards the end, when the Eisenhower administration uh, took over in 53, the possibility of escalating the war and to force the um, Chinese and North Koreans into an armistice, that came about with the possibility of escalating it with nuclear weapons, attacking China, expanding the area, and also chemical weapons. Chemical weapons were being um, moved to that theater at that time. But uh, one thing we see is that it didn't actually materialize and the war ended before that happened. So one aspect of all this, uh, which I think we should talk about as it's an area that I know you're interested in, is the discussion of the use of anti-crop weapons, which uh, seem to have emerged out of uh, the Second World War and into the, the 50s and 60s. So let's let's talk a little bit more about that. Contrary to popular belief, many chemical biological agents used as military weapons are not lethal. Serious intellectual acrobatics there. Nor is chemical biological warfare a development of modern times. For example, Biological warfare is recorded as far back as 400 B.C. Also since medieval times, a frequently used tactic has been to lay siege by denying food supplies through embargo or direct encirclement. As late as World War II, this nearly resulted in the fall of Leningrad. And today, it is possible to deny food to the enemy without even coming into direct confrontation. That method is to attack crops standing in the fields. Thus, since an army travels on its stomach, it certainly is vulnerable to attacks upon supplies of food. Well, I start with the uh, Second World War, because that's where it obviously started from. And what you find is this fascinating interaction to where biological weapons, anti-crop biological weapons, look very promising. But when it got to the uh, end um, of using them, the field conditions were so specific that it was not operable to a bomber command to use them. And then again, you had in the microcosm, spray attacks using herbicides from spray tanks seemed like a good idea, except the tonnage wasn't there. So it got back down to using bombs full of herbicides, using granular herbicides. But then when the Korean War came around, you find that herbicides came up again. To use herbicides against North Korean and possibly Chinese uh, rice crops. And then they made Bombay spray tanks. And using esters of 2,4-D and 2,4-5-T, those were liquids. And they could be as a full 100% agent sprayed out of a Bombay. So you had an idea of using B-29 bombers to spray uh, crops in Korea. And how did that history relate to the agents that we saw used in the Vietnam War, um, most iconically, uh, Agent Orange. I am glad you asked that, (laughs) because that very same weapon that was intended for B-29s 
they took the strong back off the bottom of it, put it in a cradle and stick it in 123 provider aircraft and used them in Vietnam for defoliation and anti-crop missions using a mixture of different agents based on the type of target. And then doctrine eventually evolved where they had agent orange as the general herbicide that could be used for almost any purpose. Blue for use against uh, as a quick acting herbicide, primarily for anti-crop purpose. And agent white as a long-term slow acting herbicide. So there's obviously a very long history of starvation weapons based on experiences in terms of planning in Japan and also experiences in Vietnam. How effective are these weapon systems? Yeah, so you'd think that destroying 30% of Japan's uh, food supply would be a massive undertaking. But the United States covered almost the same amount of area in the Vietnam War with herbicides. It was over a much longer period of time, of course. And it was something to where um, the anti-crop strategy really wasn't working. And the problem with that is that the um, United States during the Cold War had a misconception of how starvation works, how famines are started. It was a food denial concept. And what we really know today is that it's not a question of food denial. It's a question of food privilege, that the reason why there's famine is because of more market economic conditions, not the availability of food, but the access to food. And that is something that our war planning for anti-crop never under, never really fully appreciated. If we attacked, like, say, if we attacked, like, China with anti-crop and it was primarily in the area around Shanghai or something, if locally felt, it would be possibly 10% of the population would experience famine. But if the People's Republic of China was able to absorb that nationally, it wouldn't be a blip. So another area I've seen discussed, and I must be honest, I need to look into this, so perhaps I'm being lazy asking you to comment on this, is the idea of using this type of agent for other purposes. And in particular, I've got in mind here uh, against narcotic crops, against drug cartels. I, I think I've seen reference somewhere to the use of these weapons uh, in South America, for example. <laughs> this is this is a fascinating area in that uh, I recall reading uh, a United States field manual uh, in the late 90s that said, according to the United States, herbicides and riot control agents are not chemical weapons. And so the idea of using biological agents to wipe out crops or to use chemical herbicides to wipe out narcotic crops in Afghanistan or biological mycotic agents to wipe them out, wipe out uh, cocaine production in Colombia. These have come up as novel solutions, but the problem with them is they, um, they're not accepted by the host nations that would be the ones subjected to it. And even when they used herbicides in Colombia, the problem with it is like, great, you cut the production by 50% to an area, but the uh, narcos just double the area. 
and maintain their production. <laughs> so it's it's one of these kind of things to where you can objectively see the destruction of the crops, but you're not really objectively changing the tactical situation. And I mean, these these applications or these ideas, these applications seem to die hard. And it's not really clear to me uh, as to the extent this is a characteristic of biological and chemical weapons and how they're thought about or a broader thing related to technology and the role of technology and the kind of special powers attributed to technology. If I put more cynical hat on, I know I've just done a, a project where I reviewed Time's coverage of chemical and biological weapons for the past century or so. And what surprised me was in the 20s and 30s and, and much later, it almost seemed like every few weeks you'd get an article coming up in which you'd see chemical warfare agents against birds or against locusts or against some form of invasive species. Initially, I was surprised where this was all coming from, and it's not until you kind of read around it that you realise in part it was organisations, which is a chemical warfare service, trying to demonstrate their utility beyond warfare. And so I guess to some extent it's the idea of the sort of technological, technological savers, but it also, a bit more cynically, might be to do with people advocate for these ideas. You have this belief of innovation being able to destroy an enemy, that it's yeah. a binary. And what you really find is the problem you have with these is that if you um, wipe out a particular pest, you've now dis destabilized the ecosystem. And so when we really look at it, a more nuanced view is to look at um, predator-prey models and think of it more about as in terms of evolution and making it to where the things you don't want are diminishing and the things you do want are progressing and succeeding, not just this one swipe and all the pests are all dispelled and dispatched. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, there's There's a... There's a much deeper conversation about strategy on that, because what you see in the development of anti-crop weapons is that it was an invention. It's taking a tactic and commoditizing it into an artifact. You take blockades and uh, denial of food, and then you turn it into a physical device that press a button and it does the same thing. One of the one of the other areas I should not neglect is that the United States uh, also spent a lot of time looking at uh, anti-crop biological weapons, and there was two operations for that. One of those was called Steel Yard in the first part of the Cold War, where bombers were going to drop feather bombs full of wheat stem rust on the uh, winter wheat production areas of the Soviet Union. And then the Air Force got out of chemical biological warfare in 57, 58. And then when they got back into it in 61, they brought it back. And that's when they got 40 uh, tons of wheat stem rust to use with uh, spray tanks to cover almost the entirety of crops in the Soviet Union. Fascinating idea. Uh, I don't know if it would necessarily have worked. What you find in this is that there was a lot of uh, overselling 
when initially the idea came about, it was like, oh, well, you know, you could just like nine feather bombs would almost wipe out all of the Soviet Union's crops because it'd start this massive phytodemic. And then it, that turned into, well, maybe we need two tons, eight tons. Wait a minute, they got this new lands initiative. Now it's 40 tons and we can't maintain a stockpile of 40 tons because we can barely keep up with the current production as is. And then eventually they solved that problem for storage, but then you we're still running into the problem. It's like, well, what would we use this for? What scenario does this come into? What comes out of that for me is the idea that there is a need for, you know, interested people, but essentially disinterested people to be looking at this area and thinking critically about some of these weapons and the history of them. Because ultimately, I think it's clear that it's not always the right ideas or the right understandings of these weapons which, which come to dominate, and it often happens through kind of historical happenstance. What you find institutionally is institutions have to hold on to and defend ideas that weren't made by the people that are currently in those institutions. They feel like this need that they have to be the last guy standing to support a decision made 50 years ago that was a bad decision. And they know it's a bad decision, but because it was made by their institution, they have to still support it. You see, you've made a terrible mistake there uh, in allowing me to finish this uh, podcast in this way uh, because you've just given me the idea that we need to do top 10 terrible ideas in the history of chemical warfare. And as it was your idea, you now have to come on the show and do another special in which we work through that together. So uh, I'd like to thank Reed uh, for coming on the show today and I really hope you enjoyed uh, this episode. I really hope you can join me next time as we continue our antisocial history of biological chemical weapons and warfare on the Poisons and Pestilence podcast.